Welcome to Recovery Plus Podcast. Fuck yesterday, focus on today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hannon. Here, we celebrate and honor people in recovery one conversation at a time. Let's talk. Welcome back. This is episode 53. My next guest is Dan Joseph, a remarkable individual with a unique journey. An Army veteran and accomplished book author, Dan's story is one of resilience, transformation, and the pursuit of a higher purpose. Having served as a combat engineer while concurrently pursuing his master's degree, Dan brings a wealth of knowledge and personal experience to the realm of recovery and mental health. As a child of immigrants from the Middle East, he has overcome significant challenges, including surviving child abuse. In his college years, they were marked with self-medication, yet he managed to transition into a successful biotech career. In his college years, they were marked with self-medication with drugs and alcohol, yet he managed to transition into a successful biotech career. Despite his achievements, Dan felt a yearning for something deeper and more meaningful. This longing led him to forge powerful connections within the military community, where he discovered a shared sense of purpose centered around duty, brotherhood, and a fervent commitment to serving their nation. Dan's life took an unexpected turn when he joined the military at a later age of 32. Armed with the insights gained from his own journey of recovery, he found himself aiding those grappling with post-traumatic stress. Now he is determined to extend his knowledge and support to others who are on their own path to healing. As an accomplished author, Dan penned Backpack to Rucksack, a book delving into the potent leadership strategies derived from military and tactical perspectives. Join us in this conversation as we delve into Dan's profound insights and his dedication to supporting service members. Take a listen. So hi, Dan. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. I'm really excited to have you. So let's dive right in. Um, Before we get started, I wanted to say thank you for your service. Um, Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. You're worth it. No, thank you. So tell us a little bit about what life was like for you before joining the military. Well, so back in my younger days, um, I definitely grew up feeling and now that I've I've gone through my own recovery and whatnot, feeling out of place, uh, wanting uh, inner, not understanding what inner validation was. And so um, I grew up, you know, first generation of immigrant parents who um, basically escaped oppression in the Middle East to seek safety. Um, So a lot of generational trauma from what I understand, just based on the stories my mother told me of her growing up and almost being kidnapped and having friends just disappeared left and right um, at very, very young ages. And so I grew up with parents who were told us to be extremely grateful for the freedom we had in America, but to also almost fear the rest of the world, have this kind of scary world phenomenon um, going on in the family of um, you never know who's out there, who's who's going to want to get you kind of a thing because of what they experienced. And so um, anxiety and stress in the house were pretty high. Um, but, you know, we did our best to be these, you know, American kids, right? Because that was, and it was sort of handing hold or holding hands with two different cultures because the Middle East culture is very shame-based and um, it's an entirely different type of honor code. And then here I was in America kind of teaching my parents as their child what freedom looks like for us here, right? Freedom of expression, freedom of identity to be who you are, however you want to be, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's this, always this kind of tension of satisfy the the culture I grew up with, but also embrace my American identity and just have, have a good time, you know, enjoy life. So that kind of... Um, in college, things kind of uh, exploded for me because I never drank alcohol. I never did anything like that. I was super straight laced growing up. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I found myself in university where at 17 years old, I was um, introduced to alcohol right away, um, blacked out the first couple nights that I was on it. Um, and then these friends of mine, you know, everybody was just dabbling in different types of drugs from marijuana to ecstasy to cocaine. Mm-hmm. And I mean, looking back now, I'm 36. I'm like, what a young age to have all this come at me, right? And right. for anybody and to feel it's not just um, the the party scene. It's not the substances. That the, it starts innocent because we want acceptance. We want friendship, right? We don't look right. at it as 
this is a, a criminal act. But then all of a sudden, you know, you're just neck deep in all these different addictions um, if you're not careful, right? And especially for me, because I had so many different wounds psychologically growing up. I had experienced child abuse. So there's a lot to self-medicate from. Mm -hmm. And then um, while I was in college, um, one of my first sexual experiences was sexual assault. Actually, my first, it's tough to talk about, but I was assaulted when I was intoxicated. And uh, I don't really remember much, but now as I still continue to work recovery, I realize how much shame I felt, um, especially when I saw this individual around the campus, how, how much I just wanted to numb out more and more after that. So just blacking out six days a week, still managing to get grades. And then that turned into post-graduation, just continuing the party scene. And my friends, it, it went from just drinking and weed to then Coke and ecstasy to then people drug dealing to then, you know, trafficking drugs and just getting, you know, people getting multiple DUIs and this was my new family, right? This is where I found acceptance. Um, and then towards joining the military, I started meeting military aged guys, you know, like me, but they weren't doing the crazy stuff me and my friends were doing. They were, they had to get up for muster or formation at five in the morning, right? So they had this sense of discipline. Uh, they could come out, they were physical, they were assertive people. I, I looked up to them. They seemed emotionally grounded and I wanted that, right? And so that turned me on to the fact that, hey, maybe there's this idealized version of myself. Like if I self-actualize, reintegrate my lost parts, I could then become integrated and whole like they seem to be without these substances and without this lifestyle. Because it was starting to get dark and multiple friends had overdoses. Some, some people died from aspiration, um, from mixing different chemicals, from going to rehab, coming back out, hooking up with an ex who then handed them heroin and they overdosed immediately because their system, this, the shock. Right. And yeah. so this was kind of not too regular, but it, I mean, it was a part of my life and mm -hmm. it was dangerous. Mm -hmm. And with that, I mean, what's powerful is the reintegration of lost parts of you, you know, mm. speak more about how meeting the, the military folks, the community, because mm. it's very different from college kind of mentality and now you're meeting right. these highly disciplined people who are laying down their lives. So tell me a little bit how that happened for you and what that looked like. Yeah. So I, I noticed for myself and my friends, there was a lot of narcissism going on. There's a lot of who are you clubbing with? How attractive are they? What clubs are we getting in? What VIP list? Who is going where? Um, promoters started feeding into that. Because um, mm -hmm. it, it was a pretty cool group of friends that I had. I felt like I was the outcast that they accepted. And so I just I just wanted to be the fun guy that would do anything to just have that validation from them. So that was one part of it that was, that was struggling with. The other thing is um, I had a deep father wound. Uh, my father passed away a few years ago. And before he died, we were able to reconcile. And um, basically for a while I, I hated him. Um, and I felt, uh, threatened by him. I, I didn't feel, I knew he loved me, but it wasn't, there's just something that didn't settle right between us. And I felt that at a young age. Um, and so a lot of my angst came from not having what I perceived to be a strong male role model who taught me how to be aggressive, but in a healthy manner, how to throttle what we call like throttling violence in jujitsu. I mean, mm. you know, you don't overreact to an opponent. You have to react respect respectfully and sure. kind of at the same, you know, and anyway, so I didn't really have that for my dad. I felt, I don't want to fault him. I, I tried very hard not to be that guy that's like, you know, it's my parents' fault. But um, I used to be like that, but now I'm realizing, you know, no, no dyad is perfect when sure. you look at interpersonal dynamics, right? And mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. um, and so when I what I noticed from these peers of mine is they were almost like pseudo fathers to me, pseudo brothers to me. It was like I I tell my friends when I compliment them and why I wrote my book, I tell them they are a mosaic of different role models that together coalesce and create the, the perfect father figure for me sure. or that perfect brother for me. So each one of them teaches me something different. Like one of them teaches me how to run. Another one teaches me how to fish. Another one teaches me how to do recovery, how to spar with people in jujitsu. And so when you take all of this together, 
um, the physicality of it, the emotional control of it, calmness, breath control. I mean, I learned all this stuff from them. Mm -hmm. And it was things, these were lessons that I, I wish I got younger. Sure. But, um, you know, I'm grateful, so grateful that I eventually did get them. And it allowed me to, to stop doing what I was doing earlier. I mean, that sounds like it could have been life-saving for you. I definitely, looking back, there are multiple nights that I know I shouldn't, I should not have been alive after that. And I know people, friends of mine who died, right. Um, getting hit by drunk drivers, being in a, in a vehicle with drunk drivers. And, and it's, it's for them that I, I just, I, I want to go back in time and just hug them and tell them like, you're, you're not a bad person. Like I'm not a bad person. We're both just medicating and it's going to hurt us. We're worth recovery. We're worth understanding what's hurting us um like you know because there's some people that they're gone forever now yeah. and i just and we were so young do you know what i mean so right. and then um death was different for me when i talked talk to my military friends because i've talked to some of them who've been blown up by ieds who've been shot at who lost multiple friends in combat and oh the death that they they still tasted death right they mm -hmm. still understood what that felt like um, but these people were kind of running into the burning building and I felt like we were out on the outskirts partying while they're sacrificing their lives that way. We're almost self-destructing. So I don't want to get too existential here sure. and blab on, but it's, it was, it, there's, there's been some deep thoughts about this whole Absolutely. You know, journey. And you know, you did not go into the military immediately when you started meeting mm. um, these folks in the military. You actually joined at 32. Tell me a little mm. bit about, you know, that's actually late. Isn't it is, yeah. Because usually folks start at like 18. Yeah, so I, I was so afraid. I was medicating all my fear yeah. for so long. And I didn't, my, one of my, my therapists, told me, he's like, look, you know, you've never felt a feeling before, man. You've been numbed out for decades. Yeah, I'm like, well, yeah. well, what does feeling a feeling mean? He's like, you can't read books about it. You can't think about it. You feel it. And you're cerebral because it's a defense mechanism. You're analytical. It's a defense mechanism. And so I started feeling my feelings again. And um, it, different things started happening. My aggression level started increasing. Um, my but not in a bad way more like i became way more athletic more mm -hmm. sort of aware of my body i could feel my body right mm -hmm. so i knew when i wanted to work out i knew when i wanted to run there's so much that started happening and then from my mid-20s is when i started hanging out with these guys um some of them were navy seals eod's um mm -hmm. different different awesome people green i knew a green beret marsoc officer pilots like all these people i looked up to because they had such cool jobs and the more and more I met them, I never thought I could be tough enough or assertive enough right. to be one of them, right? I never thought that. And lo and behold, at 32, you know, some of them talked to me and said, look, there's no shame in joining the military old if you want to join at an older age. There's no shame in that. As long as you're humble and you don't hold it over people's heads and stand on some soapbox, just go in there with, with an open mind and you'll, you will fit in with us. And that feeling, like you belong with us. Which you've been I, striving for, right? This inner validation. All my life. Right. Like des de with desperation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so prior to that, you were a successful person in biotech, just to kind of give mm -hmm. a little bit of background. And although really kind of blooding or bleeding edge technology and science, mm -hmm. which also fed a part of your analytical science brain. You, totally. Right? You were successful there. And then you went into the military. And tell me a little bit about your experience as a combat engineer. First of all, what is that role? That just sounds really mm. dangerous. Anything with combat in the, in the <laughs> name sounds kind of intense. So walk me through a little bit what that was like. Essentially, it's um, like gaming warfare. And so as an engineer in the, in the army, we have engineers that are vertical, horizontal, or combat engineers. So vertical, you know, building structures like buildings, right? Horizontal roads, airways, things of that sort. And then combat engineer, we're the demolition folks. We're the ones that that blow stuff up or set up obstacles to stop vehicles. Um, we use mines, we use concertina wire, barbed wire, things like that. And so so what I did is I was in a non-deployable unit. So I've actually never deployed to combat. But what we did is we trained up units to go deploy. And so we'd be in the desert um, 
wargaming with them, trying to get them to understand how to maneuver through crazy terrain, you know, with wadis and cliffs and all of that. And some of these were night movements. You're moving an entire convoy with these huge vehicles, can't see anything because of the dust. So anxiety is through the roof, stress is through the roof because they're trying to, we are trying to push people and ourselves to be more than prepared for battle, right? So they don't go into battle unprepared. So what does that mean? around the clock you're always on standby for missions immediate movements sudden changes to your command and your orders that you planned for for weeks right and we're talking potentially every 15 minutes every 10 minutes you get a new mission modification so you got you know hungry soldiers everyone's hot everyone's sweaty everyone's tired exhausted hey we're changing this we're changing that which i mean you see people's true colors come out and um it was it was pretty rad because recovery helped a lot with that. I knew to take square breaths, you know, ground myself. And I write about it in the book. I would have been a complete toxic, poor leader if I joined during my self-medicative days. Right. But thank goodness for recovery and the amazing people, the brothers and sisters I had through recovery, they helped me understand my breath, my my stress levels, you know, my interoception was through mm-hmm. the roof. I mm-hmm. knew when I was getting weird in in any type of way. And I could remember, Hey, this is you own your stuff. Don't project it on someone else. Watch your tone of voice. Don't condescend because I'm tired and angry. Right. (laughs) So I was constantly in the back of my mind, like trying to check my pride and my ego, which was not easy because I can get petty fast, but, (laughs) um, I did my best not to abuse anyone else because I knew what that was like, right? I suffered abuse as a child and I never want to make someone feel like you made me hit you. You made me do this to you. It's like, you don't do that. You can't ever put someone in that position. That's not fair. That's abuse. Mm -hmm. And we can have psychological abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse. I mean, there's so many variations of it. And the more awareness we have of that, the better we become as protectors of other people, whether we work with them or live with them or marry them, we need to be protectors of other people, you know, is is my heart. Absolutely. As well as protecting the country you serve. Right. I mean, (laughs) there's a multitude of things, Dan, that you've talked about so many different layers from the inside out, right? Your Mm. transformation and, and how recovery played a huge part in kind of moving you in a transformative way like you said, kind of reintegrate lost parts of you. So yeah. how does how does what you were doing in the military kind of lead you to working with folks with post-traumatic stress? Yeah, so I talked, I was having scotch with a buddy, a couple buddies, and one of them, he was a combat vet from the first wave, uh, first and second wave, I think it was, in, in Iraq. Um, mm-hmm. And I was talking to them about my flavor of crazy, just owning my anxiety and jujitsu. So I was telling them like, Hey, so this weird thing happens to me when I roll. Um, I used to get flashbacks and I had a free massive freeze response. And my therapist eventually told me, Hey, that's your, your motor neurons are, um, they don't know how to operate when you're under attack in a certain way. Cause it reminds you of childhood. You're having a flashback and that's a telltale sign that you were, you suffered abuse at a young age because your body literally doesn't know what to do. So I was telling them how my coach was kind of yelling at me, like, what are you doing? Like, you know, the move, execute the move. But I literally couldn't, I was just, is this out of body experience where I'm just rigid. And I'm like, I I don't know why my body's not working right now. Mm -hmm. And so I told them about, you know, the heaviness in my chest and the shame and the, the weight of my, in my stomach, that fear that kind of followed me home that day. And for a while, and how I managed that through therapy and through counseling and all of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, the guy sitting next to me started crying. He had tears in his eyes. And I look at him and this dude's a badass, right? He's been in war. He's, sure. oh man, he's, I look up to him so much. And he, he looked at me and I was like, dude, what's, are you okay? Like, what's going on? He said, you just described every feeling I've had in my body since Iraq. And I'm like, wait, what? Like my stuff from, from the mats, from jujitsu, from child? He's like, yep everything you, you explained right now, like, and I've never heard it like that. And he started talking to me about stuff and started saying like, I haven't ever told a therapist this. I, my wife doesn't know, people don't know this. And then he told me something he saw in combat. Um, and it's devastating. Mm-hmm. I mean, as if the, the bad guys are bad enough, right? The situations are lethal enough, let alone if you work for someone who's toxic in a war theater. I mean, it's just, 
the amount of trauma that that does, right? Because Mm -hmm. they can't decompress from trauma from the enemy because when they come back to base, they know that they're working with this person who's attacking them as well psychologically. And I was trying to validate this with him. And he suddenly realized like, holy smokes, can I, and you know, he, he said, can I, um, can I talk to you like the next few days when things come up, um, as memories are surfacing and, we did. We talked. T- I told him, of course, you know. But I said, you got to be careful. If you if you have a flashback, if you start getting into a really depressed state, you got to see a therapist because that's what mm-hmm. happened to me when I started. Anyway, and he um he did tell me he's like, look, my nightmares have been extremely vivid for the past few nights after our talk, like wow. images uh-huh. and the visceral smells and the sights and all of that, right? And he felt exhausted for like three days, which happened to me when I was dealing with my own, right? right? When we brought up childhood stuff, I'd feel like I had the flu for a day. I'm like, what is this? And apparently all those psychosomatic markers come out. Anyway, I just, um, and I just started loving on this guy and, and every combat veteran I would talk to just had these stories. Um, and oftentimes, you know, I was able to build rapport with some of them and they'd say like, look, I've never told a psychologist this stuff and I, and I won't, but I, I want to tell you. And there's so much, I have to honor that. That's incredible that I would, that they felt I was deserving of that, you know, and it made me love them even more just as a leader to never do a disservice to them by stressing them out more than their nervous system is already stressed. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I wanted to be so sensitive to, to the fact that they're carrying way more weight than they let people know about even their spouses, by the way, even their families wow. had no idea. And that that's what hurt me because I, I noticed how isolated some of them felt. And I didn't want them to feel that because I knew from my childhood and from ex- the, the things that happened to me in life, what isolation does. Self-medication will go through the roof. Mental health issues, as we know, veterans experience all of these things. It's kind of remarkable. You know, you talked about leadership, and I want to kind of see the connection between leadership and this kind of love you have for these men that you're mm. that you're leading. Because you said if there's they're not only dealing with the enemy, but now when they go back to base, there's high potential that their leaders are also verbally abusive. Mm. When I think of the military, I don't think of a warm hug. You know what I mean? Mm. And But you and I spoke, Dan, prior to this, and, and the word love comes in, and parenting totally. comes in, mm. which is not really associated with leadership, especially in the military. Tell me a little bit how you've been able to bridge some of that together. Yeah. So I see being a leader as almost being a parental figure, just in the same way that I needed a father figure, right? Um, is the same way that uh, suddenly whatever culture I create as a leader in the military, that will permeate the ranks below me, right? Now, I can't necessarily change who's above me. So the command climate coming down, I, I can't modify. But what's under me, whether I'm, you know, pessimistic, or depressive or antagonistic or positive and encouraging and friendly that kind of permeates the people around right and so the the soldiers will look up to to a leader and let that influence them even if it's ever so subconsciously you know the nuances of it are are extreme extremely fine Mm -hmm. but you'll notice little things um and so what i realized was it was so important to i mean the mission sets are stressful enough right everything's stressful enough. The tone of my voice needs to show some sort of compassion, needs to show Mm -hmm. some sort of, I mean, at least be neutral. Do you know what I mean? If not be, I'm not saying be coddling to people. I'm not saying we need to make everyone feel like they're weak and whatever. I know there's a stigma, right? Even in the military about that. Like don't make people weak because then we're not going to win the next war. It's not about that. It's about self-care. It's about recovery. You know, we maintain vehicles. We maintain our weapon systems. Why are we not maintaining the mental health of our troops proactively? Create a robust sense of self. Because if we invest in each one of them as individuals, the organization will benefit. That's why when I, I was a platoon leader, I worked on my master's in organizational psychology. Right. And I learned that if there's no such thing as being selfish to grow, because if you grow yourself selfishly, everyone you're linked to will also be raised up by that level of that level of wisdom that you've gained. Mm-hmm. You'll be a better roommate, a better partner, a better friend, a better teammate, a better soldier. It's across the board. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed is a lot of leaders who, let's say, had if there were leaders who had toxic mindsets, right? Right. To me, what I notice is that's who they are privately. Do you know what I mean? You can't, 
and soldiers aren't stupid people. And I don't, I don't care what rank they are. They deserve dignity and respect. And you can't pull the wool over their eyes for anybody who's raised a teenager. They're incredibly smart. Even toddlers can act like little lawyers, right? They see, (laughs) they sponge up everything. And so to come around and be a leader that says, you will do this and this and this because I blah, 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 whatever it is, just looking, talking down to them like they're dumb. It's a visceral primal gut feeling that they're getting. Their vagus nerve feels this stuff, right? Right, right? And if that leader, okay, you want to talk to them that way, fine. Can't stop you from doing that. But please don't interpret their silence as a sign of respect. That is not a sign of respect. They will tolerate you as a leader and they don't want to get in trouble, but they certainly don't have a, a love and respect for that individual. And when it comes to having people lay down their lives, uh, you know, right. giving them an order and these potential teenagers, can, these men and women that I'm leading could go down and, and die because I gave the wrong order or I gave the right order and that's what the mission entailed, whatever it is, I have to, how could you not love them? Do you know what I mean? That's to, to, to be so dissociated from the unit to say they're just a number to me because I can't afford the emotional impact that's way too cold. I, I can't, because to me, then are they really, is the leader really putting the effort to save lives, to mitigate any sort of catastrophic damage? Um, you don't want to just throw them in some sort of meat grinder and say, just keep marching. Cause that's my order. That's an egotistical way to lead. And I've seen good leaders and I've seen uh, bad leaders who've done that. And it's night and day, the amount of respect and straight up love that the soldiers will then have for that leader. Um, and I know we don't talk about that word a lot in the military, but Not at all. it's in the, in the, in war though, I will say this, my friends who've been to war have told me they've never felt a pure sense of love than when they were in a combat zone, because all they cared about was Maybe. did our, did, did the guys and girls make it back from that convoy movement? Is everyone literally in one piece? Is everyone back? They didn't care what their uniforms looked like. They didn't care who shaved or not. They didn't care about paperwork. It was are they living and breathing? I mean, it's crazy to think about that, but they said that was the, the purest sense of love that they've ever felt in their lives. Because it's such a deep connection, right? When you mm-hmm. say love and parenting, you really mean it. And as a leader, you are kind of their parent and they are kind of like your children that you want to love and protect, which also comes about, talk a little bit about how that led into your Backpack to Rucksack book on leadership. It was a roadmap through the rough terrain of leadership and human conflict. Tell uh, us a little bit what inspired you. I mean, you spoke a little bit about this, but tell me a little bit about this book and what inspired you to write it. So Cody was a soldier in my platoon. He struggled with his own mental health. Um, and eventually it got to a point where my last week as leader, he confessed to me that he uh, survived his suicide attempt a few days prior to our talk. And I had my eyes on him for a while. We were talking, but he told me that, um, he's like, look, you know, you asked me if I was all right. And I told you that I was, but I lied to you. And I, I did go ahead and make an attempt and I survived it. So we, I called his mom, um, spoke with her on the phone, let her know we're going to get him help. And we got him hospitalized and took care of him. And he's alive and breathing today, which I'm grateful for. We still check in on each other, you know? Um, So that that really impacted me um, after I got out of the army, because I thought, what did I do wrong? What did I do right? What, What could have gone worse? What could have gone better? I started going through this existential journey of what is good leadership? What is emotional intelligence in warfare? How do you marry violence with love? It's just, it's crazy. And so that was one big thing that impacted me. The other massive impact was one of my best friends, Austin. He told me, and it's hard, it's hard for me to even conceptualize this, but he said, at the time I was writing my book, 12 guys from his unit committed suicide after Afghanistan. 12. After my book was published, he called me and said, hey man, number 13 just killed himself. And Austin very well could have been one of those numbers, right? So we've talked about that. I still still check in on him to make sure he's alive and breathing and I'll do so the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And I, I just can't, the stories that service members who've been to war who've experienced things will tell you that is normalized, right? Because that's their day and night experience from right, now on. Right. It, it just, it compelled me to, to, to catalog and formulate a book that gives little vignettes about good leadership, about 
poor leadership, which often involved me at a younger age and discussing my ego deficits and compensatory behaviors, maladaptive behaviors, right? And I wanted to give people a contrast of who you could be if, you know, you struggle with things and who you could be if you overcome those things. And each chapter has a nugget of advice from an individual service member. That is sort of the thesis of each individual chapter. And I put together it's like stringing pearls of wisdom together um, of all these beautiful nuggets of information that I constantly dwelled on in my darkest days, you know? And so I wanted to give back. And, and you know, what's funny when I wrote my book, the one person I really, really thought about writing it to was my self-medicating younger self who was so extremely lost. And I thought, if I could learn to, again, reintegrate, right, love myself back, that, that self that I'm so ashamed of and the things that I'm so ashamed of doing, then how many other people could feel that sense of redemption and that sense of validation that I so wanted, mm-hmm. right? And so it was a cathartic way for me to just get so much weight off of my chest and get out of... Right. I was more depressed when I got out of the military than I thought. And so this helped me maneuver that. And it's 400 pages. I wrote it in like three weeks, oh my God. but the editing took six months, but um, the, it just poured out of me. I mean, we're talking, there'd be days where I'm writing for 12 hours and I felt energized when I got it out of my system. I could feel the cortisol levels just mm-hmm. plummet. It was insanely life-giving. Wow. Yeah. And it sounds like this was something you had to do. It wasn't oh my a, goodness. I was nice stuck do. in my head. <laughs> yeah, right? I, because because of the soldier, especially the one who, in my soldier who um could have not been here, you know, I could have had to go to his funeral, and I, I I visualized that. I thought as I was talking to him, I remember looking at his face, you know, his young face looking up at me, as as I'm thinking like, dude, I could be staring at your coffin right now, like thank goodness he's alive, right? But I thought this is no joke. This whole you know life and death thing that people want to avoid talking about because mental health gets uncomfortable, right? Right. Well, guess what? We got to walk in that tension. That is life. That tension is life. Mm -hmm. The whole I'm numb or I'm euphoric feeling that's fake. That is, that is not how our brain is supposed to live all the time. It is supposed to be transient, right? Transient moments, but you know, between the peaks, there's valleys and we got to be in those valleys with other people. And, um, someone mentioned it on your podcast earlier and you know, it's a beautiful quote. It's, um, that we heal through connection. The opposite of addiction is is connection, right? And self-medication is huge in the military from prescribed meds from the hospital to alcohol consumption. You know, we see domestic violence, we see DUIs. um, And that's where the parenting comes in to just love on the troops and say, you're worth it. You're worth a a healthier lifestyle. I I don't know. I don't know all the right answers. I talk a lot, but... (laughs) I want to create a discussion. That's why I wrote the book. You know, I, I want to learn more. How do you parent perfectly, right? There's no per. It's an asymptote. You always approach it. You never arrive. But let's shoot for that, you know? Um, the mission is, we get it. We know what the mission is, to move to a certain spot, to destroy the enemy in a certain location, right? But how do you take care of those doing the job, doing the mission in real time, not after they come back broken and hurt and in despair, but how do we make them more robust as human beings? I think what a beautiful way to do that. I mean, I am not a person who is very familiar with the military. I, like everybody else, watch these shows that probably do not display military appropriately. But being in there, in your experience, Dan, what I'm hearing is resilience, love, adaptability, self-care, and parenting Mm. are kind of key things, right, that your book is teaching. And I would imagine that these translate, like you were saying, beyond the military, beyond the war games, beyond, you know, telling people and supporting people on how to survive, you know, at nighttime going through all these like um, missions and all of that kind of stuff, literally missions that appear impossible. So of those kinds of lessons, which if someone's listening right now, what are the main like top three things that you would want someone to get from your book? Wow. The top three main things is one of them, don't shame yourself into isolation. That's number one. That is the most critical thing. Do not let shame be your identity because I know what that's like and it's deadly, right? It can be deadly quickly. So do not identify in your shame. Number two, speaking of isolation, find battle buddies in life. Find someone who is healthy, by the way. Be very selfishly intentional 
about picking your intimate circle. Find those mentors, those brothers and sisters, those mother and father figures, whoever it is in your life that you, cause you know what it is, what you're angsty about, whether it's, mm -hmm. you know, you want to be better with your finances, your physical fitness, your, there's a certain sport you want to do, or maybe travel, art, music, whatever it is about you that makes you joyful. Find some people in your life that will, that will speak life into that thing, because that'll allow you to reintegrate lost parts of yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and the third part I would say is find what brings you pleasure in life. That is, that brings you joy in life and do it unashamedly. Like, and it's gotta be one of those things that you know is the right thing to do. Cause there are things we do that bring us pleasure that are not good, right. but there are things that, that resonate with your soul that maybe somebody told you, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. Or they've, again, they've shamed it out of your life. And that's, that's where the reintegration part comes. And even by the way, if you're in uniform and you're in this very rigid structure, you can be the person that's not rigid. You can be the person that almost acts like a dampener in that rigid structure. Meaning if there's a sudden shock wave and the structure has to break because rigid structures break. I talk about that in the book, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. if you aren't rigid, you can absorb shock and that speaks to mental health, right? right. Um, you can absorb certain micro traumas or, or larger traumas because you know how to self-regulate and um i know that this is all i mean i could blab about this Love for days that. but it's so so near and dear to my heart um yeah. and I, I hope the troops understand that again they're worth it and you know i don't you know this more than most that that's not really the message always, or maybe it is. And and I'm so happy that you're on here to like spread the news. Here's the reality of not just what needs to happen, but what is happening. Like in your uh -huh. platoon, we know for sure that when you're leading your troops, Dan, people follow you because they respect you, but you also care about them. Right? You really care I, I, it was them. hard not to. I was told not to. I was told by some bet, people, hey, you're, right? you're breaking the rules. Do not get close to them. But, you know, I, I guess what? I have one mode and I'm not ashamed of it. And if people want to say, oh, you're too sensitive or you're too soft or you're too approachable, I'm not going to change. I'm sorry that you think that, mm -hmm. but there's no way I'm going to lead these, these younger soldiers and speak down to them like I know. I've been spoken down to. Like, I know I've been hurt. I, this, it's going to stop with me. The cycle is going to stop with me because mm -hmm. I saw what intergenerational trauma has done. I've seen what happens when people don't deal with their stuff and a younger child catches the brunt of it. That is not fair to that kid because now their worldview is to flinch rather than embrace adventure. And yeah. I would never, I, I don't care how many people, it wasn't a lot of people that faulted me for this, but there were some. And quite frankly, they were the ones struggling with their own mental health. I saw that through and through. The ones that will tell people, keep your mouth shut. You don't complain about depression. You don't know what depression is. You don't know what real war is, blah, 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 blah. You hear these people do that. Then guess what? You'd find out a few weeks later, they got carted off to the hospital due to a mental breakdown, due to suicidality. Mm -hmm. And I don't want either of them to be hurt. I don't want that that guy to be hurting because right. he, he's struggling with his own suicide, but I certainly don't want these younger soldiers to then be told that message, right? Mm -hmm. And so let's get help across the entire, you know, the whole unit. It's just so wrong to do that, to say, I don't know how to overcome this thing. So I won't allow you to overcome that in your life. That's not fair. A self-limiting belief is a self-limiting belief. To project that on other people and say, this will now be your limiter, uh, that... That's abuse. To me, that's abuse of power and authority. It's not how a parent should parent. It's not how a leader should lead. And I can't agree with you more. I mean, it sounds extremely negligent. And, you know, this book, now you told me it needed to go through quite a few eyes. You know, not your <laughs> I common, sent it to the Pentagon. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah. most authors are not like, let me have the Pentagon be my editor. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so how has this book been received? Because it's a very different message, correct? I mean, mm. you know more than most uh, in the military, this message of love, resilience, self-care. You know, how many times is that repeated in the military, especially <laughs> at boot camp, right? So yeah. like, how has that been received? Well, we are seeing, we are seeing thanks to all the psychologists out there, all the people doing the work, folks like you who are willing to have these discussions, right. the VA, people are working together to change the message. Mm -hmm. It is changing. Right. So um, 
we need to put it in practice more. You know, we, we hear about it, we have the PowerPoints, but we got to actually live it out, right? Self-care and all of that. Um, so I'm simply, I, I want to make clear that I'm not this, you know, God's gift to humanity. I'm just another voice in this beautiful crowd of people that's willing to start starting the conversation, right? And um, I just want to be another voice in that group that has a healthy discussion. But so far, it's been a positive way more positive feedback than I thought. I, I mean, you understand this because you're a clinical psychologist. I had a lot of shame come out once I published the book, a lot of shame because I wrote about stuff about myself that I didn't, I, I didn't expect to be as weighty as it was. And when I, when I put it out to the world, I'm like, I can never, I can never take this back. This is stuff that everyone's going to know about me. I felt naked, you know, That's very vulnerable. and so yeah. I didn't, yeah, I didn't push the book that hard at all. I kind of released it and then just sat back on it. I It took me about almost a year to feel more comfortable with the message. You know, this is one of the first podcasts I'm doing about it. And uh, I've only done a handful so far, but now there's over a dozen scheduled after wow. this because people see the value. And I was touched by that. I didn't expect it, but I was so caught in my own head about self-shame, even still, even after all the recovery work, but that's okay because recovery is not linear. It's cyclical, right? You're always scaling the mountain a little bit higher each each go around. Mm -hmm. And so I'm I'm okay with that. I'm only human, but um, I'm looking forward to, I'm engaging some leaders, some of the brass in the military, some higher ups, and thank goodness the Pentagon chose to approve the book. And mm -hmm. so that adds a little credibility, but I think 2024 is going to be a really exciting year. And I'm I would love nothing more than to stand in front of a group of troops again and just just share that love unapologetically, you know? I think that's amazing. And I guess that's the thing is, you know, what you've gone through and, and what you get to now carry this wisdom and then pay it forward to military folks as well. I mean, if there is like top two things that you have learned with this process of being extremely vulnerable, um, being privy to people's darkest and deepest secrets of, of the military community, what would you share? Well, I would share that one of the biggest things we can do to strengthen ourselves is loving our inner child, as John Bradshaw used to say way back in the day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, right. mm -hmm. In warfare, people are broken by war in different ways. And some really arise up mm -hmm. and they could be really quiet ones. They could be really timid people who suddenly when they're getting shot at, when things are blown up, they're the ones to, to lead the charge while others who act very tough have this facade will fall apart. So I would say if you have self-acceptance of all your, your, what you think may be deficits, what you think may be weaknesses in your life, if you begin to, to look back and just kind of accept what has happened to you and believe that you're greater than that to rise above it, when things get crazy in life, you'll be the reliable one. You'll be the one that stands tall because you have less fear. And I believe that the less we fear ourselves internally, the stronger we are when we face external challenges. Do you know what I mean? The Absolutely. mountain is just that less daunting. The dark forest mm -hmm. is that less dark for you because you don't have fear inside. Whereas the people who are hiding fears and building facades around them, they'll be the qu quickest to fall apart. Um, and you'd never expect it, right? Because they look a certain way. But right. the fake it till you make it, that, that anyway, really yeah, that's, some, that's debatable with mental health, right? The other thing I would say is understand the value of mental health and warfare because it's not often talked about when you look at i guess how proactive you can be to prepare yourself for any challenges in life losing a loved one devastation in the world a car accident whatever it is just having a robust mindset um just again it, it makes you a reliable person it makes you somebody who's dependable. And when they're falling apart too, they can lean on you. The unit will be stronger. And it really, it's, it ties down not just mental health, but if you, if you need to study like the actual neurocircuitry of the brain, that's yeah. what I did. Mm -hmm. I wanted to learn why are, do certain people create cognitive dissonance? Why are certain people depressed? Why do certain people have so much positive energy? And if you look at neurotransmitters, neuroplasticity, the hardwiring of the brain, that really to me adds excitement to the the recovery and the mental health journey because our brains are so sophisticated they're Absolutely. you know it's 
it's a reliable piece of equipment that we need to maintain. And it all comes down to self-care and making sure we're constantly growing it and nurturing it. And that makes you a better athlete, a better soldier, whatever it is you're doing in life. So yeah, sorry, it's all jumbled, but no, I go. love that. I think <laughs> there, you're right. Life is not linear, and there's so many different ways to look at yourself that could be with compassion that actually helps in leadership, that helps in your own life. I love about finding your joy unabashedly and unapologetically. Yeah. So with all of this, what kind of things now? We got to hear a little bit about your childhood and all the way up to the present about inner validation. Where are you with your own inner validation? So it's, I mean, look, this is, you're helping me with it right now. Just you being here, reciprocating these feelings that I have, right? Allowing me to expand on this. You and these other folks that I'm talking to, it's, it's, this is awesome. So where I'm at now is finally accepting all these ugly parts of myself, putting it in a book and knowing that I got to write another couple books, knowing that um, there are people out there that are willing to be engaged, right? This isn't about me. This is about that person who doesn't know that they, they needed to have this message, right? That again, that younger version of myself who is so either intoxicated or in denial or dissociated from their body that they just need somebody to give them that hug or to give them that piece of information that says, look, there's an, there's another way through life. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's my mission right now. And I don't know exactly how it, how it looks and that's okay. I know that I've been given some amazing opportunities to speak at, um, especially because of September's around the corner and that's suicide awareness month. So I've been asked to be a, a military sort of liaison or representative to talk at some events. And oh, I'm just going to have as many <laughs> thanks. I'm going to have as many organic, real raw conversations as mm -hmm. possible and see what comes of it. Because I believe that the more I lead into this with just like, faith and love, the more that it's going to pay dividends. Do you know what I mean? And so I don't want to create some canned speech. I don't want to make this over formulaic. I want to come out there and just let those raw feelings that I have hit other people and resonate because that to me is what recovery is about. It's not about these are the steps that you got to do. Now go do it. It's, it's more about, do you see me? Do you feel what I'm feeling? Can you empathize, right? That's where people are are stimulated to understand and truly believe I can change. If this guy can change, if he can walk out of that and he struggles with exactly what I do, I just want to share that human experience. So I'd love to get on more podcasts, do more interviews, speak with more people. And um, quite frankly, just get over my own ego shortcomings and fears. I, I really do like just want to kill the ego and, and try to humble myself as much as possible. Cause I know my ego defenses want to spike up. I want to get prideful. I want to get defensive and, uh Oh, I don't know if I should share this, but I just need to chill out and realize I'm human just like everyone else's. And the more rigid they are, especially when I talk to service members who are still putting up a front mm -hmm. to, to not fault them for that, to understand that's who I was when I was younger mm -hmm. and to just say, um, I'll be here for them whenever they're ready to talk. You know what I mean? I just want to be that guy that, I don't want to look at people with judgment because I, I know what I struggled with and who am I to judge, right? Mm -hmm. So, Wow. I mean, I, I'm so excited to see kind of where you're going with all of this because I think, you know, where I sit, it's like, how many times do we get to hear to normalize the experiences of people in service, mm. right? I mean, and you are becoming that voice that can go, it's okay, it's okay to be afraid. Like how many people in the military admit that they're terrified? <laughs> I mean, it's cool because the ones who've been, you know, the, the ones I've heard this from right. are kind of the ones who've, who almost lost their life to suicide because mm -hmm. they came out the other end saying, you know what, I'm just going to call it what it is. I'm going to be extremely real at this point because I almost lost my life right. to what I thought was, it was a false reality. And you, you kind of hear that in their voice, that, that purity of, yeah, I was afraid. Who wouldn't be afraid? Right? Who wouldn't be scared of that situation? Right. You just look at them like, yeah, let's, let's get this message out. It's, you know, fears, fears, safety, that's a safety mechanism, right? We need so it. we need that for sure. You don't want somebody who's totally unafraid and going in there, like thinking they're Rambo or something and just getting people's lives, you know, lost or damaged or injured or taking risks. And so, um, 
you know, and again, I mean, I appreciate you. I feel like you're shining a spotlight on me, but there's so many other people <laughs> that have inspired me. And I just, I feel like such a small drop of water in this kind of this ocean of new thought about mental health and about warfare and combat and whatnot. And so um, I'm honored to, to be a voice. Um, I feel imposter syndrome often because I, I haven't been to war. I haven't been shot at. Um, but I've worked with the folks who have. And what's really cool, and I have to remind myself, and I'd encourage anyone else struggling with imposter syndrome who feels they could be a voice for someone, they've told me, you know, you put words in my mind that I, I didn't have the words to describe these feeling states. But hearing you, you're kind of guiding us. I mean, you're guiding us through our own emotions about war. And I thought, like, that's that's an interesting value to have because I thought I'd have to be one of them, you know, had to experience it. But they're like, nope. Oh man, you're able to see what we feel. You're able to tell us what we're feeling. And once we hear your words, describe it psychologically, then it makes it suddenly less shameful. It's less scary. It's less intimidating. It's, mm -hmm. it's normal. They're human, right? But they didn't know that for years they repressed it. And, um, but you know, I just love giving too. that gift. To, they deserve it. They mm -hmm. deserve that freedom, right? Cause they fought for our freedom. So isn't it ironic that they feel trapped? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the I, things I wanted to say to you, Dan, is you do know what it's like. You are in your mm. own war, right? You are in your own trauma. <laughs> True. And, yes. you know, it, it's mm. not like apples and oranges. I mean, everybody has mm. suffered on some level. And your mm. suffering, you've turned it into a healing process. And now you're a spokesman for people who have experienced something similar, whether it's warfare wow. on the field or whether Thank it's you. warfare in their childhood, right? So mm. I would highly challenge you, okay, in this moment <laughs> not to dismiss yeah. this part. And, and so where I get to sit and have the privilege is to have someone like you who is so heartfelt and extremely passionate and compassionate about the experience of those who serve and put their lives on the line. You have also served. Remember, you were a vet you. as well. And, and <laughs> you're not you. done yet, right? You're just right. beginning to, you know, you started at the beginning of inner validation and what you're doing mm. is on a much grander scale of validating other people, sometimes mm. the voiceless, right, and the unseen, and you're doing that with them mm -hmm. alongside them because you know because it was you too right so i yeah. want to honor you and i'm excited thank you so much that you very kind of to you. do that of course um and you know to again dan's book is out called backpack to rucksack a roadmap through the rough terrain of leadership and human conflict obviously we have heard so much more about what the the name behind the book the person <laughs> the face behind the the book again so grateful to have you here and i think thank you i will keep track of you to see what goes on i would love to have you back on again it's been an incredible privilege if people want to know more about you how can they reach you uh, you can go to my website, combatpsych.com. So combat and then P-S-Y-C-H.com. And um, the book has a little preview section for the first three chapters. I'll be consolidating podcast interviews on there. And uh, there's a contact me button as well. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for your service. Thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, doctor. I love what you do. And your podcast is amazing. And thanks so much. It's great being here. Thank you for listening to Recovery Plus Podcast, Fuck Yesterday, Focus on Today. I'm your host, Dr. Maylee Hennon, celebrating and honoring people in recovery one conversation at a time. This podcast is sponsored by Red Door Coaching and Consulting, and you can find my podcast on Amazon, Apple, and Spotify. Also, you can find me at my website at www.reddoorcc.com. You can email me at mhennon at reddoorcc.com if you're interested in transformational coaching. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.